0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning Philippians chapter 1 what does it mean to be a partner in the gospel let's think about that on a specific level what does it mean for us to be a partner in the gospel with our missionaries partnership involves fellowship and in our day fellowship means getting together getting together over food so to the extent that we've done that with our missionaries, then we have fellowshiped with them. We have partnered with them. But in the Bible, partnership is much more than that. It's more like going into business together. Sometimes we can reduce the partnership in the Gospel that we have with our missionaries to simply praying for them or simply sending money to them or simply both of those things. But partnership is much more than that, isn't it? It certainly doesn't exclude those two things, I think, but it it should be much more than that. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to, to answer the question in your mind, how does partnership happen within the context of the church? That is, how does partnership in the gospel look, or what does it look like? When we partner with other Christians for the sake of the Gospel, does God intend for us that we have a casual relationship with them? What does partnership in the Gospel look like? Think about that as we read and study this passage this morning. I'll begin reading in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1. This is the Word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of You, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of Your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in You will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have You in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In this passage this morning, we're going to see that genuine love and partnership for believers will produce fervent, eternally focused prayer for them. Genuine partnership, genuine love for believers will produce fervent, eternally focused prayer for them. So number one, partnership in the gospel includes genuine love and joyful praise. Partnership in the gospel includes genuine love and joyful praise. Verses three through five. Genuine love for believers is seen in the scope of Paul's prayer for them, and it should be in the in our prayers for others. Notice verse four, always. So how often does Paul pray for them? Always, and this is obviously hyperbole, but, but he's saying I frequently, often, as often as I think about you, I pray for you, he says in other passages. And then notice how comprehensive he is in his prayer. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for whom? For you all, for all of you believers. And then I skipped over there in the middle of verse 4, with joy. Christians pray frequently. Paul says, I always pray for you. Christians pray comprehensively. praise for them all. And Christians pray joyfully. And then in verse 5, we'll see here in just a minute that Christians pray specifically. So, let's think about this, that Paul is often praying for them. He calls it always there in verse 4. He says, I thank my God, verse 3, in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There are two things that Paul is thankful for with regard to these believers. He's thankful for their participation in the Gospel. Verse 5. And he's also thankful for their concern for Him. Notice verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you're all partakers of grace with me. You know what it's like for me to go through this because you're a partaker with me. You you know my my struggles so he's thankful for their participation in the gospel and their specific genuine concern for them for him so how is it that we pray for other believers with whom we have partnered in the gospel is this something that could describe us in our prayers that we are always praying for and just name someone from our church or name someone one of our missionaries we need to follow Paul's example by finding our joy in the progress of the Gospel. The only way I would, I would uh, suggest to you, the only way that you're going to always pray for people, that you're going to frequently spend your time praying for other believers in the progress of the Gospel, is if you find your greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel. If your greatest joy is found in something else, you're not going to be praying for the progress of the Gospel. You're not going to be praying for other believers. John says in his epistle I mentioned last week to the church there, he says that there is no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And and so we ought to, if if at the center of what we're doing is the progress of the Gospel, then we will frequently be praying for other believers here and then uh, our missionaries that we've partnered with as well. And... When our joy, by the way, is in the progress of the Gospel, no matter what kind of financial or physical setbacks there are, we can still have joy. We can do this, like Paul says, with joy. Why? Because our joy is not found in those things. Our primary joy is not found in how much money we have or how good our circumstances are. Our primary joy is found in God's name being spread to more and more people. It's found in believers growing in their love and their knowledge of God. And so even in our infirmity, we can praise God. We can have joy in that circumstance because we see God working in other people and in us. And that's why as Christians, we need to find our greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel. In verse 5, we see that Paul prays specifically for them. Specifically, he says, in view of your participation in the Gospel... He recognizes that this is a serious commitment that they've made. This is not just a flash-in-the-pan type interest in Paul and in the Gospel. Notice verse 5. At the end of the verse, in the, uh, your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. It wasn't just, oh, this kind of sounds interesting. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about this Paul person and his ministry, and so I'm going to be concerned about them. And, and then it kind of, they kind of fall away. No it's 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 from the first day until now they have been concerned about him and they have been themselves participating in the gospel. So partnership in the in the gospel includes genuine love. We we can't we're not going to pray for people generally speaking if we don't love them. It starts with genuine love for people and joyful praise to God because our primary concern is about the progress of the gospel. Number 2 Partnership in the Gospel is eternally focused. Partnership in the Gospel is eternally focused, verses 6-8. through Paul was so confident in the Philippian believers that he expects them to to have a lifelong participation in the Gospel. Verse 5 said, from the first day until now, but here in verse 6 he's going to say, I expect this to continue all the way until the end. Notice why he can be sure of this. Verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus Now I I must admit that we tend to use this verse primarily to talk about our own individual eternal security and I think that is a principle that we can draw from this we I don't think we wrongly do that but but I don't think that's the main point of what Paul's saying so Let me address that, the eternal security part of verse 6, and then we'll go to what I think Paul's main point is. What you see here in this great verse, Philippians 1.6, is that there is a past, present, and future aspect of our salvation. There's a past, present, and future aspect of our salvation or our sanctification. And what we're going to see in this verse is that God is behind it all. Notice verse 6 again. See if you can see the past. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So, verse 5, he talked about that it's already going on. That's the present aspect. And then future is that God will perfect it. So, whatever change that God has produced in you or in any other believer is a result of God. That God started the work in you And God will continue it. He will, we could say, complete it. He's going to finish it. It's going to happen. And I can tell you that when you come to understand that God is behind every part of your salvation from start to finish, it will relieve you of your burden to bring about your own salvation from your own human effort. Christians, we can be confident that God will finish what He has started. Here's what Jude writes. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, keep yourselves in the love of God. You believers, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that sounds kind of daunting. We feel a little bit helpless when we read something like that, unless we read four four verses later that says, Now to Him, speaking of Christ, who keeps you from stumbling... And He was able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, be honor and glory and praise forever. See, yeah, we do keep ourselves in the love of Christ. Paul's going to say this in chapter 2, verse 12. He's going to say, work out your salvation and we can feel this huge weight on us. We have to keep our own salvation until we read the next verse, which says that it's God who works in us. So, what we learn here from verse chapter 1, verse 6, and from chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is that for every part of your salvation, every part of your progress in sanctification and your glorification, God is behind it all. God is behind it all. Now, I I said that that can be very liberating for us because it kind of relieves our responsibility in a way. But we've got to be careful not to go swing the pendulum too far the other way and just think, well since God is behind it all, then we can just kind of sit back and, and do nothing. And God will just kind of sweep us on to glory. But I want you to think about two things with regard to our final salvation. Okay, so that was the that was the God's sovereignty side of, of salvation, that God is sovereign over it all. He will make it happen. Now I want to start talking about our responsibility over here that goes right... With, along with God's sovereignty. Two things we need to think about with regard to our final salvation. First, our final salvation does not happen apart from our perseverance. Our final salvation doesn't happen apart from perseverance. What I mean by that is that God will not magically transform you into the image of Christ while you're sitting on your hands spiritually. That has never happened and that never will happen. The temptation for us when we understand that God is behind all of our salvation from start, He began the good work in us. And He continues it and He will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. The temptation for us is to presume upon God's grace. If God's already justified me, He's changed me, and he's going to be the one who finally transforms me then i don't have to do anything here's what john calvin says on this he says christ justifies no one whom he has not at the same time whom he does not at the same time sanctify these benefits are joined together by an everlasting bond an inseparable bond we can't just be justified saved from the flames of hell if god justifies us romans 8 he will sanctify us. And He will glorify us. It's a necessary bond that can't be broken. No one just gets into heaven by the skin of their teeth. They have to be changed. It's something that God does within every genuine believer. Jesus said to those who professed faith in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you hold to My teaching then you are really My disciples. You want to be described as one of Christ's followers? Well, then here's the perseverance part. Yes, God is behind it, but you need to hold to My teaching. If you abandon it at some point and turn away from God and the truth that Jesus is the Christ and that He was sacrificed and that He was raised from the dead, if you turn away from that, that's evidence that you never had it. You were never holding to the teaching in the first place. You never had the life-giving source of the Word of God. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. The confidence that we had at first. We come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. So, Our final salvation doesn't happen apart from our perseverance. God expects us to do something. He expects us to to work out our salvation. He expects us to keep ourselves in the love of God. And all the while, God is behind it. Here's what uh, theologian Daniel Akin says on this. He says, Christians are capable of tragic Moral failure. But genuine believers remain in the faith. They eventually repent. We can think of an example, one of the clearest that comes to my mind, a believer in the Old Testament, David. Tragic moral failure. But a genuine believer. He eventually repented. He goes on to say, a Christian may fail totally, but not finally. The Scriptures never present the believer's Security that is that God's going to do it all as an excuse for sin, and they warn about the consequences of spiritual disobedience. Sin in a christian's life may result in divine chastening, being unfit for service, loss of rewards, premature death and here's, here's a critical statement that he makes he says the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian guarantees that there is no such thing as a happy backslider. The guarantee, the fact that the Spirit lives within Christian he, Christians, he guarantees that there is no such thing as a happy backslider. And and those who are indifferent to spiritual matters indicate that there was no real conversion. So, those people that you know who have no concern for spiritual things or very little concern, like their only concern is so that their life would be better now, then perhaps there was no real conversion at all. Our final salvation happens because of the work of God, but our final salvation doesn't happen apart from our perseverance. Do you believe that? Secondly, our final salvation doesn't happen apart from God-ordained prayer. Our our final salvation doesn't happen apart from prayer. Notice in the text here that Paul just gets done saying in verse 6, I am confident that he's going to finish what he started. And then look what he does in verse 10. He starts in verse 9, and this I pray, and then skip down to verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We're going to get here in a second, but Paul's saying, I'm praying that you make it till the day of Christ. And so what we learn is that our final salvation doesn't happen apart from our perseverance and it doesn't happen apart from our prayer and other people praying for us. So, God is the one who's behind it all. Any type of positive spiritual change that you've seen in your life is a result of God and His gracious work in you. The same effect, it's a result of your continuing perseverance. Those things are not opposed to each other. They work in concert with one another. Our work and God's work. But we can't take the credit for it because ultimately God is behind it all. So, we tend to look at that verse individually. God is going to work out my salvation. He's going to finish it. He's going to finish what He started. But I think the point that Paul is making, if we think about it within the context, is that you have had a concern for me. You've had a participation in the Gospel. You've partnered with me in the Gospel. And I believe, verse 6, that you all, Philippians, will finish what you started. You're going to continue to participate with me in the progress of the Gospel. The survival of their partnership with Paul, thankfully, did not depend on them. Just like our, our survival as Christians do not depend ultimately on us. It depends on God. It depends on God's promises. Are they true? Is what He said to us true that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again that we would be saved? If that's true, then it depends on God. And praise God that it does. Notice Paul's unity with the Philippians in verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. So Paul has this deep concern for them. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So they have a concern for Him. The word feel there in verse 7 in the second line. It's translated as like-minded in other parts of this letter. The point is that Paul is saying that you and I, that is you congregation and I, have this like-mindedness. I have this like-mindedness with you. And that like-mindedness is effective in helping them to grow in unity towards this progress of the Gospel that they all love. Paul loves it. The Philippians love the progress of the Gospel. And it's evidenced by the work that they're doing together notices genuine love for them in in the uh, in the third line there verse 7 because i have you in my heart paul speaks of this church like he has this deep love for them like a, a parent would have a love for their child who's going away into war perhaps is in afghanistan just longing to see them again and just reflecting on the times that, that the parents had with that child and how they longed to see them come back and that's Paul's deep desire for the Philippians. Do you have any Christians like that in your life? People in this church of whom you say, Lord, thank You so much for them. I don't know what, would my, life, what my life would be like without them. Do you have a deep desire for other Christians? And, and, um, and are you just overwhelmed at the love that they have shown for you? Don't you want to be that kind of a person for them? Other people within this church, they just long to see you because of your common goal of seeing the Gospel progress. When we are like-minded around this common goal, finding our greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel, then our lives will be full of relationships like that. You will not have to look hard to find relationships like that, where Paul, like Paul's talking about here. I just can't wait to see you guys again. The love is seen further at the end of the verse that that uh, the the believers there in Philippi did not abandon him. you know sometimes when believers go through trouble, we can start to instantly diagnose the situation. Well, you must have done something wrong. I mean Paul, you, you must have messed up somewhere. you shouldn't have appealed to Caesar, you shouldn't have been so open, you could have been a lot quieter, and so they start to nitpick all the various things but but not the Philippians. They were right with him. Paul, what you're doing is for the sake of the Gospel and we're behind you all, uh, all the way. They didn't abandon him when he was in prison. Instead, they stood by him and cared for him, sent gifts to him. Partnership in the Gospel is eternally focused. So number one, partnership in the Gospel includes genuine love and joyful praise. Number two, partnership in the Gospel is eternally focused. And then number three, partnership in the Gospel results in fervent prayer. Partnership in the Gospel results in fervent prayer. If we're going to partner with one another, with people in this church, for the sake of the Gospel, we need to be praying for one another. If we're going to partner with other churches and with other uh, mission uh, mission projects, mission uh, families, then, then we need to pray for them. Paul, Paul here in these three verses gives ways for us to pray for other believers. And when we go through these verses, I want you to think about what kind of things we should be praying for with regard to one another and for those with whom we've partnered for the sake of the Gospel. In verse 9, we see that Paul prays that they would grow in love. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. point is that Paul recognizes there already was some love going on obviously. But there's always room for improvement for all of us, right? And so Paul says, I pray that your love will abound more and more. And we can say, well, what kind of love, Paul? What are you talking about? Love for God? Love for Christ? Love for believers? And I think he leaves it open so that he, he doesn't exclude one of these. That is, that if we love God more and more, then what's going to happen with regard to our love for believers? Is that not also going to abound? And if we are growing in our love for one another around the progress of the Gospel, does that not come because of our love for God? You see how these things are connected? They're they're not separate. Paul prays that they would grow in love. And then he prays that that love would be attached to something. Look at the next line. In real knowledge and all discernment. Love is more effective when it comes into conformity with knowledge. Suppose that you were in a kind of a deserted area with a person, another person that you loved, and you found out that they had cancer, and the people around just didn't have the equipment or the ability to be able to, to be able to take care of the problem, to remove tumor the tumor. You see, you could love them all you want. But if you didn't know how to get rid of that tumor, you couldn't help them in the in the way that they needed it most. And yet, if you had the ability, if you had more knowledge to be able to remove that tumor from, from that loved one, then your love would be more effective. It's not that you didn't love them before, it's just you didn't know how to, to take care of their problem. And I, I think that's a good illustration of what it should be like in our church. Sometimes we have this love for other people, but we just don't know how to Minister to them. When when someone dies in their family, when they get a serious illness, like we don't really want to go see them because we don't know what to say. But as you grow, Paul's saying, I pray that you'll grow in your love and in your, your discernment, that your love will be a result of your greater knowledge. That when you go to minister to that person, you will know exactly what they need at that time. You will know what kind of word of encouragement or maybe just to sit there and listen. And as you grow in your relationship with God, you will see yourself grow in your love for others and your ability to help them in a specific way. Do you know people like that in your life who just they knew exactly how to minister to you in a, in a desperate time of need or in a time of joy? Maybe you were getting a little full of yourself and they came to you and just challenged you or something. Well, that's the kind of person that we need to be to others within this church. We need to know what's going on. It's not a love that's just, you know, we'll just have the sloppy agape type love, you know, but but it's a love that's understanding of the scriptures and growing in, in the way that we minister to people. Paul wants believers to grow in their love and in their knowledge so that their love can be more effective. And then verse 10 in their discernment. So that... Why grow in love and knowledge? So that, verse 10, you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul prays for their discernment. As you grow in your love and your knowledge of the Scriptures, then you will grow in your discernment, your wisdom... Those who approve the things that are excellent, as Paul says there in verse 10, are mature and wise Christians. So the implication is that in order to be wise and mature, we have to grow in love and knowledge. We can't just skip ahead to maturity as a Christian. We have to read the Scripture over and over again, hear it preached, and correlate its truth. And we need to think God's thoughts after Him. We can't think God's thoughts after Him unless we hear what He's thinking. And he's told us what he's thinking, thankfully. That's when we start to get the mind of Christ and then we're able to do verse 10. Be able to approve what's excellent. This is what Paul prays for them. And if if you think you're exempt from this type of approach, that is, you don't really need to grow in maturity as a Christian, look at the end of verse 10. Approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul's saying this is a requirement. This is what happens to believers. They grow in maturity. We're all headed toward blamelessness on the day of Christ. And Paul says to get there, we have to grow in love and knowledge. And I have to, I have to just tell you this, that it's going to require some work on your part. It's going to require some effort like we talked about in, in the hour before with regard to our Bible intake that we become more spiritually mature. And what is this all about? Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, we might get burdened by our responsibility. We have to grow in love and knowledge in order to be accepted as blameless on the day of Christ. But again, Paul goes back to the fact that God is behind it all, doesn't He? Notice what it says there in verse Eleven, Which comes through whom? Through Jesus Christ, right? It's through Christ that we are growing. Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man who is like the tree planted by the rivers of water and his his fruit uh, comes in its season and its leaf does not wither. So, I would encourage you to plant yourselves Near the source of life, the river that is Jesus Christ, and watch yourself produce spiritual fruit through the power which He supplies. And then the end of the and the end of it all. Here's here's who gets the praise. Look at the very last phrase: to the glory and praise of God. At the end of it all, we can't take the credit, can we? Like I grew in love and knowledge. God, give me some some respect here. Give me some props. Proper respect, right? No, God gets the glory. In heaven, people will not be looking at us and saying, wow, we're such." you're such a great Christian. How did you do all of it? No, they'll be asking about your story. I really believe that we'll be spending hours and decades just recounting our life story. And we'll be telling people about what happened in our lives, and they will not be looking to us to praise us, but instead they'll be saying, "What a great God to change such a person into the conform in conformity with Jesus Christ." We'll be telling of God's grace, and people will be amazed—not at us, but at God. So let me leave you with three points of application this morning. Number one: partnership in the begotten. Partnership in the Gospel begins with love. Partnership in the Gospel begins with love. Did, Did you notice how strong of a love Paul had for the people at Philippi? Did you notice what kind of things he was most concerned about in their lives? Because when we think of love, we think, well, we need to know what's going on in their life. We need to know about their physical needs and their financial needs. And and that is part of it. Certainly we shouldn't dismiss that. But did you notice what Paul was primarily concerned about? Not those things. He didn't even talk about those. He didn't ask about those. What he was primarily concerned about was with how the Gospel was progressing with them. And so, here, here I say again that Christians must find their greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel. And when we do... Our love for other people will express itself in our desire to see the Gospel grow up in them. See, it change them. If we're going to be partners in the Gospel, it starts with love. Number two, partnership in the Gospel is saturated with joy. When was the last time that you were filled with joy at the progress of the Gospel in the lives of believers at this church? When, the, when was the last time that your heart was overjoyed because of the progress of the Gospel that God is doing within this church? I am the biggest sports fan in my house. I'm just not saying much. But suppose Jennifer complained to me that she, she doesn't remember the last time that she took great joy in a Detroit sports championship or in a Detroit sports team. Then I would say to her, well, then you weren't paying attention. If you wanted to find joy in the Detroit sports teams winning championships, just watch. Watch with me. And you'll see the joy that there is when they make it. And they win. And it's happened a half dozen to a dozen times since she's moved to Michigan. But she missed them for the most part. She, she does like the Red Wings a little bit. But but suppose she said, you know, I, I just haven't found any joy in and any of these teams winning championships. The problem is not that they're not winning championships or they're not competing in championships. It's that her interests lie elsewhere. And you know, that's okay when it comes to sports. Because sports is not life. Sports are not life. But the Gospel should be. When the Gospel is at the center of what we do, our greatest joy will be when the Gospel progresses. But if we keep saying, you know, I haven't taken any joy... In the progress of the gospel in this church, then I would say that you're missing out. You're not watching what's going on. Because God is at work in the hearts of people in this place. And through the resources that we spread to other people and around the world, the problem is not that God is not working for the progress of the gospel, the problem is that we're not watching. And if you're not seeing the progress of the gospel, if you're not taking joy in it, if you're not praying for the progress of the gospel, then you need to get in the game. You need to get involved and see what God is doing. Partnership in the gospel is saturated with joy, and if we don't see that, we need to be better partners. Number three. Partnership in the gospel cannot be casual. Partnership in the gospel cannot be casual. I think that we have sacrificed genuine partnership in the gospel in many cases at the altar of efficiency. Do you understand what I mean by that? In order to be efficient in our spread of the gospel through, let's just take missionaries as an example. We have become more efficient and less like partners. We've turned this into a big production organization where we just kind of feed it a couple things and it runs. But I would suggest to you that that's not the biblical model for partnership in the gospel. I think in in order to be efficient in the spread of the gospel, we have abandoned the relationship aspect of that's necessary in partnership. Oh, we may be really efficient sending the check, maybe hearing about reports, watching the the work grow, but we missed out on the great graces of God along the way. We missed out on the benefits of these loving Christian relationships. And so let's think about the relationships that we have with our mission missionaries currently. Participation with others. Participation with our missionaries for the sake of the gospel. I would suggest involves much more than eating with them once every four years. It involves much more than watching their update when they come. It involves much more than sending money and even praying for them. It involves more than that. It involves a genuine, loving relationship. We're going to see later on in chapter 1, verse 19, that that the Philippians prayed for Paul in his afflictions. They knew what was going on and they prayed for him. We're going to see in verses 27-30 that, that they, they were afflicted themselves because they believed in the progress of the Gospel. They testified about Christ. They even sent one of their representatives, Epaphroditus, to care for Paul's needs. They sent gifts to him. I financially supported him, chapter 4. That's a partnership. So, I ask you, in the current relationship that we have with our missionaries, how are we actually partnering with them in the Gospel? Do we have anything more than a casual relationship with them? Do we ever put feet to our prayers? You know, we pray for a lot of things with regard to our missionaries, but do we ever do anything about that? Is it enough for us just to have Sarah send a check to the mission board once a month? If we're going to be serious about our responsibility to partner with them for the progress of the gospel, then I think we need to have a close relationship similar to the relationship that you have with your immediate family. What would it be like if somebody from your immediate family, maybe some of you know what exactly what this is like, moved away overseas? What kind of can you still have a relationship with them? I think that's the kind of relationship that we need to have with our missionaries. That's the way that Paul and the Philippians, because they had a common goal, the progress of the Gospel, and they wanted to see it happen. So they prayed for it. They found out about each other. They longed to see each other. I think that ought to be the way that we relate to our missionaries. And for our church, it shouldn't be as hard as some of these other churches who have 70, 100, or 100 missionaries. We have nine. And we very easily could relate to them a lot more intimately than we do now. I think you can think of specific ways in which you personally can represent our church well just by contacting them and letting them know that you're praying for them. I mean, think about the advances in technology since the time of Paul. That we can actually see a video representation of the person on our computer screen or even on our phone and talk to them during some downtime, even if we wanted to. So I think partnership involves more than praying and sending money. Sometimes we use those as a cop-off. I certainly don't think it includes less than that. We, we ought to be financially concerned for them and we ought to be praying for them. But it's much more than that. And I think the same thing is true with regard to relationships within our church. So we've thought about it with regard to missionaries, but what about within our church? If we take seriously the progress of the gospel, then our relationships with one another need to be more like brothers and sisters and less like co-workers. You know when I'm talking about the co-workers that you don't really like to be around and that away from work you never see because you don't want to see them. You don't spend time with them. That should not be the case in our church. We should be more like family and less like, you know what, let's just do this thing. Go. We're in this work together, so I'll see you on Sunday and I'll chip in where I need to, but no, that's not how families work. That's not how partnerships work. And I don't think that's the model that God has set up and that has been exemplified for us through the Apostle Paul. So think about the relationships that you have right now with the progress of the gospel, specifically this church, and then our missionaries. And I think in the weeks ahead, I think we'll be thinking about also churches in our area. How can we partner with them? Don't we all have the same mission? We're all trying to reach people for the sake of Christ and see believers grow in their knowledge and their love for God? Well, then why not partner with these churches in some way so that we can see the the work of God go forward. Christian, find your greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel. When you do, you will praise God for the progress that He's making in the lives of believers. You will have an eternal focus more than just a temporal one. You will pray for the further advance of the Gospel, and your relationships with believers will be much more than casual. It will be a sweet, sweet relationship like Paul's was with the Philippian church. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the the deep relationships that You've built among the people here at this church over the years. And uh, it's even evidenced yesterday in, in uh, their care for Barb and former member Terry and and their concern concerned for the family. And so I, I praise You for that, that relationship that does exist. I pray that You'd help us to grow more in our love for one another and in our knowledge of You so that we can better be equipped to care for people's needs. Lord, there are real needs that are taking place right now in the lives of members of our church and with family members connected to our members. And so I pray that You'd help us to know how to interact with them and how to deal with these things and how to encourage and to challenge. And I pray that you would help us to know how we can better partner with our missionaries. I thank you for the resources that you provided to the church over the last couple of years that have allowed us to be able to go overseas and see some of these missionaries firsthand and develop a closer relationship with them. And I pray that You continue to provide in that way because I believe that, that it is vital to our partnership with them. I pray that You'd help us to do our part in whatever way we can, even if we can't go, but but to, but to communicate with them. To show them that we care and to, to long to see them like we would our sibling or our parents. Lord, we, we pray for Your help in this. Lord, we pray also that You would help us to know how to partner with other like-minded churches in our area. Certainly, we don't want to hold hands with those who are disobeying You. And so the, the challenge is is difficult uh, to know exactly what kinds of churches, but I know of of a handful just off the top of my head within a short distance of our church that we could very quickly partner with with for the sake of the Gospel. And I pray that You'd help us to know what exactly we can do in that way to further reach people for the sake of Christ and to further encourage other believers to get us away from this Elijah mentality that we're the, we're the last ones and to recognize that there are many more people who are striving for the sake of the Gospel. Lord, help our greatest joy to be found in the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.